I want to put in a moment a little picture on the, the screen for you. I want you to take a look at this beautiful, quaint little island and see if you recognize it. You recognize that quaint little island? It's a little island just a little over a mile off the coast of San Francisco that we affectionately call Alcatraz. <laughs> Alcatraz served as a maximum security federal penitentiary for 29 years between 1934 and 1963. And some of the worst criminals in American history were sent to Alcatraz to serve at least part of their sentences. One of the most notorious of those criminals was none other than Scarface, a.k.a. Al Capone, the gangster. And during the 29 years that uh, the prison was in operation, 36 prisoners tried to escape. 23 of those prisoners were apprehended, caught alive. Six of them were shot and killed as they tried to escape. Another two drowned. And then finally, five more, the bodies were never found and they were officially declared as missing and presumed drowned. Now, one of those five prisoners who was declared missing and presumed drowned was a man by the name of Frank Morris, who was portrayed by Clint Eastwood in that 1979 classic Escape from Alcatraz. Well, in the first century A.D., the Roman Empire had an Alcatraz of its own. It was an island off the coast of modern-day Turkey that was called Patmos. It looks like this today. This is the side of the island that hasn't been built out with, with uh, buildings and structures and whatnot. But Patmos is still there today. It was an island off the coast of, of uh, Turkey in the Aegean Sea. And unlike Alcatraz, it didn't have a big concrete cell block. It didn't have a lighthouse or a guard tower, but it was a prison colony nonetheless. Political prisoners and other convicts and criminals were sent to Patmos, exiled there, so they would be away from the rest of Roman society. And the most notorious, the, the most well-known of those prisoners who was exiled at Patmos in the first century was none other than the disciple who Jesus loved, John the Apostle. The best-known prisoner that ever was exiled to the island of Patmos. Unlike Frank Morris, uh, John didn't try to escape his island prison, at least not physically. But the book of Revelation records an amazing vision that John had while he was on that island. And within that vision, God gave him a glimpse of what Jesus Christ in his glorified form was up to in that day and what he would be up to in the days to come. It's a glimpse of the present and also a glimpse of the future. He wrote it down for seven churches that were alive and well in those days in that area of modern day Turkey. In those days, it was called Asia Minor or the province of Asia. And he wrote down these revelations from Jesus Christ and praise God, they've been included in the Bible for us. So they're available for us to read and study and glean from today. Over the next eight weeks, we'll be taking a closer look at the first part of Jesus's revelation to John, the first three chapters of Revelation, where Jesus speaks words of life to the Christians in those seven Asian churches. This morning, we begin our new message series that we're calling the seven churches of Revelation. 
Before we dive into chapter one, we need to answer those five questions that are important to tackle whenever we begin a study of a new book of the Bible. These five questions help us get our bearing and help us to get the most fruit out of our study. So question number one, you probably remember who wrote it. Question two, to whom was it written? Question three, when was it written? Question four, why was it written? And finally, my favorite question, why should I care? Well, let's tackle those questions. Question number one. Who wrote the book of Revelation? Well, as I mentioned a moment ago, it was written down by John, most likely by the Apostle John. John identifies himself by name four different times in the book of Revelation, three times in chapter one. You'll see that in verse one, verse four and verse nine. And then he identifies himself as the author once again in the final chapter, chapter 22, verse eight. Question number two, to whom was it written? To whom was it written? Well, according to verse four of chapter one, the book of Revelation was written to the seven churches in the province of Asia. It's that area of land uh, oftentimes referred to, as I mentioned, as Asia Minor. Today, it's the country of Turkey. The seven churches uh, there in Asia Minor, Minor. These were who he was writing to. Now, we're going to put a map on the screen here for you just so we can kind of get our bearings. I mentioned that Patmos is there in the Aegean Sea. So if you were to look at the little box in the bottom right corner, that gives you kind of a a zoomed back view of that whole geographic area. We have in the box this area that's depicted on the larger part of the map. You can see on the left side of that smaller map, Athens, Greece, and then over on the right side, modern-day Turkey. And so the Aegean Sea was situated back then, and of course still today, situated between Greece in the west and Turkey in the east. Turkey being, once again, Asia Minor. So we look at that area of modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, and these are the seven churches to which uh, Jesus sent a revelation through John. The first of those was Ephesus. It was close to Patmos. It was the closest of those seven churches, actually only about 30 miles from the island of Patmos. So interestingly, as John is writing down this revelation, as he's in exile, one of the churches he's writing to was as the bird flies just 30 miles away. But to John being in exile, it probably felt like that city of Ephesus was a million miles away. But as we'll see over the next few weeks, as we look at the specific letters to those seven churches contained in Revelation chapters two and three, each of those is one of these seven dots on the map. Each of these churches, they weren't very far apart from each other. These cities were pretty close by. And we'll notice that the letters are given to them in a clockwise manner. It begins with Ephesus in chapter two, makes its way all the way clockwise, all the way to church number seven, Laodicea in chapter three. And so we'll talk about that a little bit more in the weeks to come. But that question was, to whom was it written? It was without a doubt written to the seven churches in the province of Asia. And because God is a loving and merciful God, he is speaking these messages to us as well. The revelation of John isn't just for the church back 2000 years ago. It's also for the church today. Question number three, when was it written? It was written around 95 A.D., Written around 95 A.D. So think about this for a moment. 95 A.D. would have been about 65 years after Jesus hung on the cross because he hung on the cross in 30 A.D. So 65 years after Jesus had died on the cross, by this time, the Apostle John would have been at least in his 80s. He's an older, gray haired gentleman. 
And we're pretty certain he was the only apostle still living. All the other 11 apostles had been martyred for their faith by the time he writes down the revelation that we're studying this month. And so this was a difficult time around 95 A.D. We know historically it was a time of great persecution. We'll put that up here for you if you're taking notes. It was a time of great persecution and suffering for Christians. Rome was the dominating world power and Emperor Domitian was on the throne. Now, a lot of you may not have heard of Emperor Domitian. You've probably heard, though, of Emperor Nero. Emperor Nero is probably the most infamous of all the ancient Roman emperors. Uh, He was the one that accused the Christians of burning Rome when he did it himself. You know, the old legend about uh, watching Rome burn as he played his fiddle. It's Emperor Nero. And so he blamed the Christians for for causing all this trouble in Rome. And so he took Christians, arrested them, dipped them in tar and used them to light his palace grounds. He used Christians as human torches. And so there's no doubt about it. Nero was a wicked, wicked man. But as bad as Emperor Nero was, Emperor Domitian was even worse You see, Nero, when he persecuted Christians, it was pretty much localized in that capital city of Rome. But when Domitian came to power, he was persecuting Christians throughout the Roman Empire. So bear that in mind when John is writing down the revelation given to him by Jesus Christ. It is a time of great suffering and persecutions for Christians throughout the Roman Empire, including right there in those seven cities that we saw on the screen a moment ago there in Asia Minor. Question number four. Why was the revelation written? Well, the book of Revelation was written to shine the spotlight on Jesus Christ, the great overcomer, who empowers his followers to be overcomers as well. The book encourages Christians to stand firm and be faithful to Christ when suffering and persecution come our way. Jesus makes it clear to those seven churches uh, in Asia Minor that persecution is on the horizon. John basically says, I am being persecuted And the message from Jesus Christ is you're about to be persecuted, too. And his message to us 2000 years later is Christians, if you are not being persecuted yet, it's just a matter of time. Suffering and persecution are coming as you take a stand for Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation reveals that this world will go from bad to worse. But through it all, the resurrected Jesus is sovereign. Remember what that means. To be sovereign means to be large and in charge. So Jesus will come out on top. He will orchestrate the events of human history to make sure that God's will is carried out one way or another. The message of Revelation is a really, really important message, isn't it? We need to hear this message. With uh, all of that's going on in our world today, persecution in Nigeria, persecution in Afghanistan, even persecution right here at home in the United States, we need to hear this message of Revelation. But it does beg the question, why was the book of Revelation written in such a strange way? If this is such an important message for the people 2,000 years ago to grasp while they're being persecuted... And for us to grasp today while we're being persecuted, if it's so important, why did God have this written in such a strange way? Well, the book was written with this strange imagery. It was written with this cryptic uh, uh, symbolism. 
why didn't God just write it in plain English? Why didn't he at least just write it in plain Greek? Many Christians have asked that question over the years. Some have just pushed Revelation aside and say it's, it's too obscure, it's too weird, you know, let's just focus on other books. But God wouldn't have put it in the Bible if it wasn't vitally important for you and me to study and to understand. I want to suggest to you there's a very good reason why this cryptic language and symbolism is used in the book of Revelation. You see, whenever you're reading a specific book of the Bible, it's important to understand what kind of literature it is so that we can interpret it correctly. For example, the Psalms are poetry, right? The Psalms are poetry. So we are not supposed to interpret what is said in a Psalm in the same way that we interpret something that's said in a book of history. Books of history are to be taken literally. The Psalms aren't always to be taken literally. Uh, We can take the book of Kings literally, but we can't always take the Psalms literally because Psalms lean heavily on metaphors and imagery and hyperbole. That's exaggeration to make a point. Poetic devices uh, help convey truth, but aren't intended to be taken literally. So let me give you a quick example from the Psalms. In Psalm 19, verse 4, David writes, In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun which is like a bridegroom coming from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. So are we supposed to take David literally? Has God literally pitched a tent for the sun? Is the sun literally like a bridegroom and literally like a champion rejoicing to run his course? And the answer is, of course not. That was just poetic language. We interpret it differently than if that was in the book of Kings. Just like when your friend tells you, I am so hungry, I could eat a horse. Do you go out and butcher a horse and put that in front of your buddy and say, okay, you promised. You said you're hungry enough to eat a horse. You know, don't be a liar. Get to it, buddy. Get to it. Of course not. We're not going to hold him to that. We know that it is exaggeration for emphasis. We interpret that differently than something, a statement that's clearly intended to be taken literally. So. What kind of literature is the book of Revelation? It is apocalyptic literature. An apocalypse is an unveiling. It's a revealing. It's a revelation. And so the older translations in those opening verses talk about this as the apocalypse of John. Apocalypse and revelation mean the same thing. They both mean an unveiling. Apocalyptic literature was common among the Jewish people during times of intense persecution. It's not intended to be taken literally. It uses cryptic symbols and imagery to conceal the message from unbelievers while revealing God's truth to believers. I like how Bible commentator Ray Summers says it. He writes, it is a revelation and unveiling of God's message through symbols. This must be kept in mind and followed if the truth of the book is to be known. Its message comes not through literal understanding of its words, but through the interpretation of symbols. It is a divine picture book. Isn't that good? Its message comes through the interpretation of the symbols. It is a divine picture book. And so we find this apocalyptic literature several times in the Bible, uh, notably the last half of the book of Daniel. 
The last half of Daniel is apocalyptic literature with similar cryptic symbols and, and uh, signs and, and imagery like we see here in the book of Revelation. And then Revelation itself, almost the entire book, is written in this apocalyptic manner. And so think of it this way. If it was an intense time of persecution and Nero, well, Nero was dead by now. If Domitian got a hold of the book of Revelation, he got a hold of that scroll and he unrolled it and began reading it from start to finish. He would just think it's a bunch of gibberish, right? Some fanciful, some it wouldn't make sense. But when a Christian got a hold of it with the Holy Spirit inside of them, helping them to interpret and understand all the symbolism and cryptic imagery used, they would be able to get the message. And so it's kind of written in code so that Christians can get it and non-Christians don't. It was a specific type of literature used by the Jewish people in times of persecution. Question number five, why should I care? I'm going to give you three reasons why you should care. Number one, because you will be blessed. Look at verse three there in chapter one. Jesus makes it clear that you will be blessed if you read and listen to and if you take to heart what is written in the book of Revelation. Number two, you should care because it will prepare you for the coming persecution and return of Christ. You look in the final chapter, chapter 22, verses 18 through 21. Guess what? God wins. Jesus comes back and he wipes out the devil and wipes out all evil and establishes a perfect kingdom here on earth. And so we want to be prepared for the persecution that's coming in the meantime. We want to be prepared for Jesus's return and we want to be prepared to rule with him when he establishes his permanent, perfect kingdom. And number three, because the book of Revelation powerfully proclaims the holiness, majesty and power of Jesus Christ. Oh, we're going to see that without a doubt over these next couple months. Jesus Christ is high and lifted up and he is large and in charge and you don't want to mess with him. He is one tough fella. <laughs> and in the book of Revelation, it is crystal clear that no matter what the world throws at Christians, no matter what the world throws at God, Jesus Christ will overcome. Amen. So here we are in Revelation chapter 1. Let's start with the first three verses here in chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it. And take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Amen? The time is near. Remember that the word revelation means an unveiling. So in verse 1, John makes it clear that the whole point of this book is to show Jesus' servants what must soon take place. This revelation was first and foremost for the seven churches in the province of Asia back there in the end of the first century. Uh, so whenever we read and study and interpret this book, we must make sure we don't make the mistake that most Christians make. We ignore the original audience and we just look at the meaning for us today. We're going to completely misinterpret this book if we completely forget that it was primarily for its original audience at the end of the first century that was being persecuted under Emperor Domitian. And so we must first understand what the message is to them and then in turn what the message is to us. This revelation was first and foremost for the seven churches in the province of Asia. 
So take another look at verse three there. Jesus says, blessed are those, or excuse me, blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. So this is the first of seven Beatitudes contained in the 22 chapters of Revelation. You can find the other Beatitudes, the other blessed are statements in uh, chapter 14, verse 13, in chapter 16, verse 15, chapter 19, verse 9, chapter 20, verse 6, chapter 22, verse 7, and chapter 22, verse 14. So that's no accident. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the symbolism of that number seven. Uh, but seven different Beatitudes, seven different blessed are statements are spoken here in the book of Revelation. This is the first of them here in verse three. This word blessed is a translation of the same Greek word that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember in Matthew 5, as Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount, he begins them by giving us eight Beatitudes, eight blessed are statements. He begins with blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth and so on and so forth. He goes through those eight Beatitudes early in the Sermon on the Mount. And you may remember from our study of the Sermon on the Mount earlier this year what that word blessed means. Uh, blessed means this. It means to experience God's approval, to be nourished by God's goodness, to be in an enviable position, to be fully satisfied, to be joyful regardless of circumstances. And as my Bible college professor, Noble Staten, said, as he studied this word from which we get the word blessed, he said it also means Congratulations, as if Jesus says, congratulations to those who follow him well and obey him and trust him during their lifetimes. And finally, that word blessed means buoyed up. If you want to find out more about that definition, you can find that conveniently in my brand new book, Buoyed Up, <laughs> scheduled for release on November 1st. Now, that was a shameless plug for that book, wasn't it? So uh, anyways, I've been working on that all year. Several of the staff members have helped make this a reality. Uh, we'll be telling you more about that in the upcoming weeks. But anyways, this word blessed means all of those different things. Experiencing God's approval, nourished by God's goodness. No matter what trials and difficulties come our way and try to push us below the surface, God makes sure we bob back up to the surface as we follow and trust in Jesus Christ. Amen. Revelation 1, let's pick up here in verse 4, where we left off a couple minutes ago. Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. It says, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who lives, excuse me, to him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and father to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come the Almighty. These five verses are chock full of some powerful insights. We don't have time to address all of them, but let me hit a few highlights. Uh, look at John's greeting here in verses 4 and 5. 
If you look closely and you decipher the symbolism, you'll discover that it contains a wonderful blessing from all three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you see how the Father is mentioned in verse 4? The Father is the one who is and who was and who is to come. That's a paraphrase of God's holiest name. Remember when God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush, Moses says, well, who do I tell the people you are when they ask who sent me? And God revealed his holiest name. He said, "Uh, tell them I am who I am. Tell them Yahweh sent you. I am is the first person form of Yahweh. Yahweh is the third person form of the word. I am is the first person. So it goes like this. When God refers to himself by his holiest name, he refers to himself as I am. When we refer to God with his holiest name, we refer to him as Yahweh. It's just different persons of the same God. First person versus third person. And so what does this mean? Well, that name I am, that name Yahweh means the self-existent one. Uh, God isn't a God who was. God isn't a God who someday will be. God just is, right? In the past, God is. In the present, God is. And in the future, God still is. He is the great I am, the self-existent one, the only creature in the entire universe who has no beginning and has no end. So remember, uh, God revealed himself as the great I am. And here, basically, God gives a paraphrase of this name Yahweh when he refers to himself as the one who was and is and is to come. He is that uh, great father uh, that's uh, paraphrased here in verse four. He's the self-existent one. Well, where do we see the third person of the Trinity here in verse four? Notice it says the seven spirits before God's throne. In Jewish numerology, uh, the number seven, I'll put this up here for you. In Jewish numerology, the number seven is the number of perfection and completion. Therefore, it is the number of God. So when you read of seven spirits, remember symbolism is used in this book. So seven symbolizes God. So seven spirits refers to the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is mentioned there in verse four. Well, what about Jesus? Where do we find the second person in the Trinity? Well, we find Jesus in verse five. Uh, It says it very clearly that uh, Jesus Christ uh, is also one that's granting grace and peace to the readers of this book. Now, I want you to notice uh, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit are giving this blessing uh, to John's readers And the blessing specifically is for grace and peace to be upon you. Grace and peace to be upon you. You probably see that there at the top of uh, verse 4, don't you? Grace and peace to you. And so I want you to notice that this was one of the most common greetings between Christians in the New Testament. The traditional Jewish greeting is shalom, which of course translates as peace. But Christians prefaced shalom with grace when they greeted each other. Grace and shalom to you. Grace and peace to you. Why did they do that? Because they recognized that grace is a predecessor to peace. Unless you have the grace of Jesus, you can never experience the peace of God. Christians came to realize that it's impossible to obtain God's peace without first having received his grace. 
Because true peace can only come through the saving grace of the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. It goes like this. There is no peace apart from the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Amen? Well, let's finish the chapter. Starting in verse 9, we read, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you now see in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Well, in verses 9 through 11, John highlights some of the main details that we discussed earlier. John was the author of this book. He was exiled on the island of Patmos. And on a certain Lord's Day, which, of course, is Sunday, on a certain Sunday, he had a vision. And a voice from heaven told him to write down on a scroll everything he saw and send the scroll to those seven churches in Asia Minor. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And in verse 12, when John turned around to see whose voice it was, who did he see? Well, it's clear from verses 17 and 18, he sees none other than Jesus Christ, the resurrected King. Think about this. The, the most common drawings and paintings of, of Jesus that we've seen during our lifetimes were typically paintings or drawings of Jesus in the manger as a newborn baby or Jesus on the cross when he was crucified or Jesus at that last supper uh, before he was arrested as he was around the table with his, his 12 disciples. Those are the pictures we most often see that depict Jesus. But when we haven't seen one of those three key scenes, uh, typically when we've seen a picture or a drawing of Jesus, We've seen something like this, a Jesus holding a cute, precious little lamb. We just want to go, ah, isn't that precious? I love that picture. Or if Jesus isn't holding a lamb, we maybe would think of this kind of picture. Jesus holding a precious little child. This is one of my personal favorites. I love that image of Jesus lovingly holding a child against his shoulder. That's a precious thing. But what kind of picture is given to us here in Revelation chapter one? Uh, Jesus isn't described as holding a little lamb or holding a little child. The depiction given of Jesus here is more like this. Ah! <laughs> 
I wouldn't want to meet that Jesus in a dark alley. Man, he's creepy looking. <laughs> and so this is the artist's rendering of what is described here in Revelation chapter 1, particularly in verses 14 through 18. And so you look at that picture, it's downright scary. It's a yikes moment, isn't it? You know, uh, now this next picture is not quite so creepy looking. Another artist depicted Jesus this way. Not quite so creepy, but still pretty scary, right? You know, if, if I saw Jesus looking like this, I'd probably pee my pants. You know, th- this is a freaky looking Jesus. No lamb, no little child. In fact, if, if this Jesus was trying to hold a little lamb, he, he'd probably incinerate him with his face or maybe impale him on the sword coming out of his mouth. And so uh, this is a, an intimidating image of Jesus if we try to depict in a painting or a picture what is described here in Revelation chapter 1. Look at that description again in verses 10 through 16. His voice loud like a trumpet. He wore a long robe that went all the way down to his feet. He had a golden sash around his chest. His head and his hair were as white as snow. I always picture Jesus with brown hair, but that's not what it says here. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like glowing bronze. He held seven stars in his right hand. His face shined like the sun. He had this sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. So if you've ever wondered what Jesus looks like, now you know, right? He looks just like this, right? Right? Wrong. Wrong. Jesus does not look like this. <laughs> he doesn't look like something out of some B-flick sci-fi horror movie. This is apocalyptic literature filled with strange imagery and symbols. The point was never to get someone to paint a physical portrait of Jesus based on what was revealed in Revelation chapter 1. That was never Jesus' point. I'm going to give them all this wonderful description so they can paint my picture in 2,000 years. No, I think we're missing the point if we try to paint Jesus' picture here. It was designed to describe his, his eternal characteristics using eye-popping imagery. So let's do what Jesus asked us to do back in verse 3. Remember in verse 3, he didn't say, I want to bless those who paint me a picture based on the description given of me. No, he doesn't promise to to bless someone who paints his picture. In verse 3, he promises to bless those of us who read the revelation, who listen to what Jesus is saying within the revelation, and those of us who take it to heart and live out what Jesus tells us to do. So here's my best understanding of what the imagery here in verses 12 through 16 means. He doesn't want you to paint him a picture. He wants you to take to heart what is revealed about Jesus Christ himself. Let's go through these quickly. The seven golden lampstands, without a doubt, are the seven churches in Asia. You can see that in the final verse of the chapter. That imagery is clearly defined for us. The seven stars, that's a little trickier to ascertain. Either it's seven angels overseeing the seven churches, maybe a guardian angels over the churches, or what I believe, it's referring to the seven pastors or leaders over each of those seven churches. So the revelation is being given to those leaders of the church who in turn would pass it on to the members of their church. 
Son of man, obviously, is Jesus. That's clear in Revelation 1. What about the white hair and the head? Well, white is a symbol of purity and holiness. So the white hair and head means that Jesus is holy and pure. The eyes like blazing fire. Jesus has penetrating vision. He is omniscient. A fancy way of saying Jesus is all knowing. What else? What about those other symbols? Let's go to the next slide here. Uh, His feet like glowing bronze. That means that Jesus is strong and stable. His voice is like rushing waters. That means Jesus has authority over nations. Uh, He has this double-edged sword in his mouth coming out of his mouth. Jesus has keen and accurate judgment upon men's souls. And then finally, his face is like the shining sun. That means Jesus radiates majesty. So keep these descriptions of Jesus in mind because they'll be revisited over the next two chapters as those seven churches are addressed in Revelation chapters two and three. For now, I think Jesus has this word picture that he is wanting us to grasp. Specifically, he's saying, I think, to our church today. Remember, he first he first spoke to those seven churches 2000 years ago in Asia Minor. But once we've understood the message to them, this now is what I believe he's saying to us today. I believe he's saying impact Christian church. You are part of my lampstand in the Victor Valley. The darker this valley gets, the more critical it is for you to shine your light. And I want you to know no matter how hard it gets, I am much bigger and stronger than your problems. I am holy and pure and my eyesight is perfect. I know exactly what you're going through and my knowledge and understanding are perfect. Am I and and I am strong enough to save you. So I will save you. I have authority and dominion over every tribe and nation on earth, and I will judge every one of them with perfect justice. Do not doubt my majesty. I think that's what Jesus is communicating to us in Revelation one. He's not interested in us painting him a picture. He wants to reveal himself in all of his glory and splendor so that we can dig our heels in and stand strong for Jesus Christ as persecution and suffering come. How encouraging it is when we stop trying to draw a picture of Jesus and instead really listen to what he says and take his words to heart. Christians, I want to end with this. Make sure that you stay on Jesus' side. Read his word. Listen to what he is saying. And take it to heart. Because if you do, it doesn't matter what crud life throws at you. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for revealing so much about your character and your power and your majesty and your omniscience, your all-knowingness and Lord, you've just revealed so much about yourself through these powerful, odd and cryptic images here in Revelation chapter one. And we thank you, Lord, for giving us insight through the Holy Spirit to figure out what the message is you're giving us today. Thank you, Lord, for that insight. Thank you for giving us spiritual eyes to see what non-believers can't see, to understand what non-believers can't understand. To know you personally in a way that a non-believer never could understand and know you personally. Thank you, Lord. Continue to speak to us through, through your word as we continue this series in the weeks to come. 
And as Lord, we go back and revisit these truths about you in Revelation chapter one. I pray that you would reveal more and more of yourself to us so that we can love you and trust you and serve you better and better. May you find us faithful to stand strong for you as suffering and persecution comes. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're so glad that you're with us. This message was a little bit longer than usual. Thank you so much for bearing with me. I went through some of those points very quickly. So I encourage you, if you missed some of what I said, especially how the symbolism uh, relates to Jesus' character, that last few minutes of the message, I encourage you to go back and listen to it again. Jot down some notes. Go back and see for yourself in Revelation 1 how Jesus is revealing those truths. And I believe it's going to strengthen your faith and help you to follow him better and better. So use this message as a tool. Go back and listen to it again. Share it with others that you think it'll be a blessing to. And I just ask that you would serve and love and trust the Lord with all your heart this week. We're doing it together, church. We're not on our own. We're not in isolation. Together, we're standing for Jesus Christ and standing for his word and pointing others to him right here in our Victor Valley. God bless you. We'll see you next time.